Hajin is the author of five novels, including A Free Life, Waiting, which won the National Book Award, and War Trash, which was the recipient of the Penn Faulkner Award, as well as three collections of short stories and three books of poetry he teaches at Boston University, and we are today going to talk about the writer as migrant, a series of lectures that you gave. Yes, yes, at Rice University. At Rice University. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Oh, thank you, thank you. Very happy to be here. When were the lectures given? 2006. Okay, yeah. so not that, that far. too far back. You start off, and the second line you quote Nabokov, mm-hmm. or Nabokov, saying that the writer's nationality is of secondary importance and it's the writer's art that is his real passport. Yes. What do you mean by that? He wandered from country to country. I think the only thing sustain, that sustained him was his his art uh, as a writer. Also, I think there is a sense that eventually nationality did not matter as long as you produce meaningful work, good work. I think that's the basic principle. I think it really doesn't matter where you can find your home. No worthy writers without a home. It's, it's not geographic then. True, very it's, true. It yeah. exists in, in their mind. Uh, people's mind uh, and the readers, if the work is really uh, vital, it has the vitality, and then still it can find readers, younger readers. So you'd say then that great art appeals universally then rather than to specific... I do believe that, yes. Uh, in his case, you see, even he was asked, I think, uh, explicitly uh, whether he was an American writer or a Russian writer. He said he was an American writer, but the, the truth is he's also a Russian writer. The Russians have claimed him. Well, he did write in Russian, too. Yes, he translated, too. And even if he didn't, still the Russians might have made claim because his work is... Meaningful. It's funny, you know, Canada lays claim to Elizabeth Bishop, Logically. but she only lived here for a matter sure. of months. Yes, the same. You see, uh, Ukrainians have made claim to Gogol, who only wrote in Russian, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So this is really, it's, a, it's not just language or nationality, really it's the quality of the work. And yet, I wonder about that, because often the greatest work, although it appeals to a universal audience, it's often lodged in local. Yes. I, I'm thinking of Alice Munro, for example. Yes. Whose focus has typically been small Ontario rural communities. Yeah. But on one hand, the fiction is read everywhere. In the United States, and all the aspiring young writers know her work. Of course, yes. Uh, you have to start with a place, you have to ground the work in a place. And through that place, uh, particularity, you can reach the universal. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, the universal resides in the particular. Now, an author who has left his home or her home country, mm-hmm. either voluntarily or involuntarily, mm-hmm. they have to be able to remember a very uh, clearly the particular, yes. as opposed to just looking around them. If they have sure. to rely on their memory, I gather. Uh, memory, written records, photographs, whatever. But sometimes you have to imagine too. But the imagination doesn't start from vacuum. Still there is a 
empirical basis for, for memories. But on one hand, we should keep in mind that authenticity is an illusion. A, a book or a good story is a piece of art. In other words, it's artificial. As long as we give people the impression, or we can convince people this is the truth, I think that, that should be enough. The first section of The Writer as Migrant is entitled The Spokesman and the Tribe. You make the comment here that this fact indicates that often it's not the language but the subject matter and the content that determine the life of the book. Yeah, that's true. I think it's not just the language. A lot of things, if the book is the strength only, it's only in the language, then it's very hard to translate. Right? It's very limiting in you know, confining that sense. I think is there something beyond the language very often? That is the story, the experience, whether that resonate other people, other people in other places. One of the things that I read for are the beautiful, clever, funny yes. phrases. And yet those might be the most difficult things to translate. Yes, but also we should keep in mind those are important but very often the strength of a story also lies in structure, the experience itself. Yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. That, that if it all it is is clever yeah. lines, yeah. then without any kind of... Substance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that really pulls yeah, you yeah, into yeah, it. Yeah. I, too, I read, if I read a book without many fresh phrases in it, I, I feel very disappointed. But on the other hand, you know, any book, if it's translated into another language, I'm sure a good translator can give a lot of phrases, right? Well, they can. A Hundred Years of Solitude, Gabriel yeah, Garcia Marquez. Yes. There are so many beautiful phrases in yes. there. And he said, in fact, the English translation was better than... Yes, he, it was an improvement. Yes, because the translation, most translators are super stylists. And you also talk about the fact that most writers in exile, Solzhenitsyn and Lin Yutang, mm-hmm. were obsessed with language. Yes. But there's more to it than that. Sure. In that case, they are much more concerned with language because they don't live in the linguistic environment. They feel that the separation that mm-hmm. makes them more acutely aware of the language as an object, I think, in that really the consciousness is sharpened by the alienation. Yeah, it's not something that they automatically breathe no, and it's all no. around them that they take for granted. It's, so it's part of their existence that brings that, I think, the, the consciousness, uh, or self-consciousness. Only through literature is a genuine return possible for the exiled writer. Yeah, I think so. So the, so the Nietzsche, if he hadn't returned, really didn't matter in terms of his work. Right, his work would have been embraced by the Russians. For him, of, of course, personal life, him it was a, a, a happy experience, a glorious experience. To return. To return. Yeah. But I, 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 as I cited the TV series, right, there were writers who were not alive anymore. But in fact, they did return, and the Russians really embraced them. And so the same with Lin Yutang, he never returned. Yes. But the, the Chinese, they really they embraced his writings, very popular writing. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that when Solzhenitsyn returned to Russia, it was difficult for him. Oh, yeah, in the beginning, very hard. Yeah. And also his creativity, the great art that he, he produced was mm-hmm. really prior to returning. True, 
True, yes. Basically, he went home to die. That's understandable. Humans, you know, we, we get old and we can't sustain the power forever. He was embraced by the Russians. His works were really reproduced in, in the plays and he was actively involved in the reproduction. I think that was a kind of final return. The final return? Yes. What is it then? You, you mentioned the conscious effort to keep the language alive in their minds because they're not at home surrounded by mm-hmm. it, but what explains the success of so many authors who live in exile? I think the language part, also I think the two cannot be separated. On the one hand, they are aware that they don't have a direct connection with the current idiom spoken back in their native land. On the other hand, because of that situation, they have to figure out a new way to survive, they have to write. Maybe even the audience is different, but they have to continue to produce. That's the most important part. I think once most writers, they are established in their native land, they feel quite comfortable in a way, because that is very firm ground. But once you are landed elsewhere, you have to keep doing, keep writing. That becomes your only existence. If you don't produce, you're dead, right? That's right. You, you're not going to survive. Yeah, you can't survive. So artistically, you have to survive. So as a result, very often, some exiles, they are either they don't produce anything or they produce a lot. They produce it because, well, first of all, you talk about nostalgia and how actually that's quite damaging because it's not a realistic mm-hmm. way of looking at the yeah. world. They want to be able to capture the essence of their country or explain why it is that they left or what is it that you think produces such great literature from exile? Nostalgia, I think, as an emotion, is natural. We all human beings, of course, we, we have that kind of feeling. The feeling sometimes is always there, but the, we should not let that dominate our existence. That will make make it hard for us to adapt to the, the current, the, the present situa- situation. Living in the past all the time yes, and yes. Yearning, yearning for something that's yes. not even there right now. Yes, that's why people write a lot about the past to capture, recapture the past, right, to preserve it. It is a very powerful approach, but perhaps to some degree the past gradually is different thing. And to some writers, especially immigrant writers, often there's no meaningful past to begin with. Mm. So you have to really you have to suppress nostalgia and to, to really to depend on what is available here now. So that's in that sense nostalgia can be very heavy emotional burden to them. I suppose if you say they they don't really have much memory of what mm. it was like, then this writing is almost a way of producing a memory. Yeah. Or to create something after themselves. Yeah, or understanding where yes, they came understand, from. Yes, understand, yes. Some of the greatest, if not the greatest, writers. Well, Shakespeare wasn't, wasn't <laughs> in exile, but Dante and Joyce. Sure. Ovid, you know, every, every one of those, yes. It's a great tradition in the West. In, in Chinese, too, there is a great tradition of exile. The acceptance of rootlessness as one's existential condition, especially by some writers from former British colony holding a British passport and using English as their first language, exemplifies the situation most migrant writers face, this acceptance of rootlessness. 
I think there's a difference, huge difference between writers from countries, African or Asian countries, where English is an official language, and writers from other countries where English is a foreign language. There's a huge difference there, because, for instance, in the case of Indian writers, perhaps the best, the most, at least the best known ones, Naipaul, Mystery, and uh, Rushdie. You name it, they all live <laughs> outside India, yes. but still they still write the national literature. So that is a huge difference. Whereas a person from uh, Japan or China, even Russia, it's a big struggle. You can't use English as your first language. Only after many many years struggle, if you are lucky, you might like Nabokov gradually turn English to his first language. Yeah, or Conrad. Conrad, yes, eventually made it too. So that's why I said writers from the former colonies holding a British passport, for them, this kind of existence outside the native land, a rootless existence, it does not hurt them much because they still write the national literature. Very often, it helps them to become more productive, more objective, more rational. How does it do that? Because there's a distance, and because they they live in different places, their assessment can be more objective, and also their vision can be more complicated. They can be more, I think, more penetrating in a way. They can be more intelligent. They also function in a country that speaks their their native yeah. tongue. Countries like Canada, yeah, and South Africa and Australia. Yes, they're two different trends or urges. One mm -hmm. is to, to cut oneself free of all of the sure, sure. history yeah. of the English language and, yeah. and set, establish one's own national literature. There's that one trend and then there's the native languages, right? You mean in Ireland, still you have you know, Celtics and other native languages. You have that, yeah. but then you also have the fact that it's an English-speaking yes. country yes. and to establish your own literature yes. versus just continuing mm -hmm. the tradition of English yes. and judging yourself against the standards of, of the English tradition versus mm -hmm. your own standard. And of course there's a there's tension, a conflict. But in, in case of Ireland, you mean, yes, he said English is his mother tongue. Mm. It was long ago, a long time ago. So there is a tradition already. So whoever a, a, a Irish writer, doesn't matter where he or she lives, as long as they write in the same language. They produce the same literature. But the, the, the big difference then is the challenge that you have and Nabokov had and Conrad had. Yes, yes, this is a different tradition where you write in a language that is not a part of your native people's tongue. As a result, very often there is a deep alienation and a lot of misunderstanding as well. I want to quote uh, you here, you say, um, and again, this is the spokesman and the tribe part of the lecture. Even the most socially conscientious writers like Solzhenitsyn and Lin Yitang could be accepted by their peoples only on the grounds that they had written lasting literary works. His work will be of little value if not realized as art. Yeah, I do believe in that, yes. So they continue to write in their native language, but... The only reason that it that it's seen as great in their yeah. home countries is because it's it's great literature. Yes, I think there is a difference between 
occasional essays, uh, uh, little creative little works. Both writers, Sultanich and Liu Tang, they wrote a lot criticism of the society and the culture, even kind of controversy uh, with Western media as well. But beyond that, they all wrote substantial amount of literary works. Some of the pieces have become very valuable mm-hmm. to the native countries. The next part of the lecture dealt with the language of betrayal. Yes. You talk early on about Conrad and the fact that betrayal is an, an important theme, major theme in his fiction. Yes, yes. And how fidelity is one of the most important traits. Because of his profession as a sea captain, that you, you have to be... <laughs> Otherwise you die. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No one would trust you. How yeah. can you command? <laughs> how can you relate that to what he's doing with his language? He's in a way he's betraying his mm-hmm. mother tongue. His yeah. See, there's people we... We tend to make a judge, uh, make judgment of a person from the collective point of view. But how could he survive if he didn't write? If he was getting old, he needed to feed his yeah, family. Yeah, his family, and he was very poor. That was the only way for him to survive. And he did have ambition to write about Polish experience, Polish experience but he never had the opportunity. It was yeah, it was a hard life. Very few people would see how much he suffered, how, you know, the big struggle, the pain of the labor were involved in the, the process of creating process, the writing the books. I think, you know, what's a big struggle, it's very painful for him, Conrad. It was not like nowadays we can watch TV, we can listen to the radio, at least you can, you can have the environment. Yes. He, he was lucky, he had a group of... Uh, very top uh, writers, British writers. He had the Ford Maddox Ford. Yeah, also. and uh, Godsworth and uh, Wells, I think, yeah. The best writers. But he took advantage, he had to. There was no way for, for him to do otherwise. That was a way for him to survive. But eventually, really, he did a great service to the Poles. If you think about it objectively, he not only enriched the British letters, English letters, uh, the English language. He also expanded the Polish culture in a way. How did he do that? His letters, he, he mentioned that he's a foreigner, but still he managed to struggle with this language. At least he could write in this language. Nobody had done that before. Mm. He became a founder of a tradition in this language. Mm. What is more, who can claim more significance than that? Yeah. That's a monument. Sort of a bridge between yes, cultures. Yes, yes, bridge between cultures also within one of the major Western languages and he basically started a tradition, one person. So that's, there, there, there was a glory for, for Poland as well. That's the inner logic why the Poles embraced him and basically he has become part of the Polish literature. In, in Polish. There was Lin Yutan. Mm-hmm. But you have reached the pinnacle of success, uh, at least in terms of, say, book sales and book prizes. No, book sales, no. I only have one book, Only Waiting is the bestseller. Really, and my other books, commercially, I did okay. But the prizes, are, they are momentary. You can't judge a writer. <laughs> Conrad is acknowledged as one mm. of the great English writers. Yes. You are moving in that direction. So you're breaking 
new ground. It's not honestly. It's not new ground. When I started, I it took me a year to think about this because it's not just to write a book. It's to find a place, a spot in the language where you can work. I thought about Kara and Nabokov constantly. The road is there. Really, it's it's open. Nothing original. For me, it's a, a later arrival. All I need to do is to follow, to follow the road and to see whether I had the the ability and the luck. Luck was a part of it as well. To find the place in the language. Yes. Could you and and the road. The road. Uh, by that, I mainly refers to a tradition within the language or the literature. See, these uh, writers who are non-native speakers, mm-hmm. uh, but because they all write in the adopt, they all adopted English as their creative language, and their work somehow became part of the mainstream, essential part of the language. We can't take Nabokov and Karada off the language no. anymore. They are no. part of it. So the, in other words, there is a, really a tradition, a road in the language. It's not a broad road, but a path. It, it is a path, but yeah. what did what did you specifically do that they did to make themselves essential part of the I, yeah yeah I raised the question to myself from, uh, as well. My conclusion was that they were super stylists. Okay. They really the the way of writing. They knew their disadvantages, but they managed to turn that to advantages, and they became. Really unique stylists, and yet quite different because Conrad mm. was nowhere near as playful as no. Nabokov. Yeah, he's different, very different. That's why Nabokov was hostile to him. I think there was an anxiety for influence. Yes, right? that's right. It doesn't matter what. It's he's like Freud and Shakespeare. Yeah, you know? he was a founder. You know, Conrad was a founder. No matter what, Conrad uh, Nabokov would be situated within that tradition. So there was a kind of nervousness. That's understandable. But Nabokov did the other thing that is to basically to kick to pieces all the strictures to create a kind of a playfulness unique by himself. And this was because he understood and probably has a better grasp of the language better, better, yes. than most native speakers. I think bookish English. <laughs> he, he, really, he, he, he didn't even give interviews. He had to do write every, write all the interviews. Yes, that's why that's the a source of pain, the suffering. The tragic, the tragedy. He never felt at home in the language. Yeah, and yet on the page he's on so the page, wonderfully. Yes, uh, yeah, he has his superb mastery yeah. of the language. So would it be the fact that he's playing with the language in a way that a native speaker just couldn't, because native speaker comes at it from one angle, but he's coming at it from a variety of different angles. Also, there's kind of a childlike innocence, and most of. Adopters of a language are like children because you started late, right? You have yes. very hard to, to, to master the language. But he never lost that innocence. Basically, he, he enlarged it, he expanded it to highlight a foreignness. So as a result, the kind of style we know is not typical or genuine English. It's artificial, mm-hmm. but it's art. Yeah, it's fun and it's yes, playful. Fun. Yes, think? it's unique. He also came up with the un. Uh, well, no, he didn't come up with it, but Conrad, of course, has the unreliable narrator. Yes. And and yes. plays with that, and so does mm-hmm. Nabokov. Uh, yes. Do you play with it? No, so far I haven't. Somehow unreliable 
narrator. Not that popular in recent fiction, right? It used to be, yes, among the moderns. I'm speaking with Hajin, who is the author most recently of A Free Life. We're talking specifically about the writer as migrant, a series of lectures that he delivered a couple of years ago. It's interesting you talk about Nabokov not being a particularly good poet, but a much better prose writer. He admitted that himself. A person can't be good at everything. He's a, a prose master. But let's face it, I think in English there has no great poet whose mother tongue is not English. That's a fact. What was the problem? Why couldn't he translate what he did in prose to poetry? That's different, I think. Poetry is different. Too much it depends on sound. right? That sound is not something you can learn from books. A lot of things you have to develop from within. That's very hard. You have to be aware of all the echoes, the resonance, you have to write with all the weight of the language. That is very hard. It's impossible for a non-native speaker no, to write a great poetry. to listen. Eventually, there, I think there will be great poets whose mother tongues are not English. But at this point, the best poet perhaps I can think of is Charles Simic. I'm trying to think of anyone else. Yeah, he writes in English. But yes, but he, he came, went to the States in, I think, at 16. In Pnin, Nabokov says, genius is non-conformity. If a native writer purposefully violates language, mm. it's called progress. If an outsider does it, it's called malapropism. Yes, this is a conventional rule. You're not supposed to make jokes. You have to write a standard English, straightforward standard English. But Nabokov, he never bothered about that. Well, he, he made a strength out of that. <laughs> yes, I, I think that's the, the beauty of it. In fact, in the beginning, Edmund Wilson uh, really discouraged him again and again, but he never listened to him. Which is a great <laughs> thing for all of us, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> the next part of the uh, lecture is called An Individual's Homeland. Mm-hmm. We did touch on this. You talk mm-hmm. about how nostalgia often deprives uh, the exile of a sense of direction and prevents them from putting down roots anywhere. That's true. Uh, among exiles, a lot of exiles, they live in the past, especially those with a glorious, significant past. So the past has become baggage. And also they make reference only to the past. Yeah. As a result, you can't live now at this moment. You can't imagine the future anymore. That's very painful. That diminishes the writer as exile. Eventually, yes, because the subject matter gradually will get shrink. You quote Samuel Johnson as saying, every man has a lurking wish to appear considerable in his native place. Mm -hmm. Is that you? Everybody has that emotion, but how to manage that emotion? We are not reasonable animals, but we have to try to control. Ideally speaking, try to make all these feelings productive try to make them more meaningful for our life, not just for our memories. What do you mean by that? I mean if the past and all the nostalgic feelings, maybe we can use those things, those feelings and try to look at them, examine them, and also as a writer we can write about those and try to transcend them, or sometimes make use of them to produce art, mm-hmm. rather than just use them as our existential references. Do you have a lurking wish to appear considerable in China? Everybody has. Desire no. for fame? or but Not for fame. To be understood, I think I would say. When people read my work and they say he wrote truthful work, serious work, that's all. Not fame, but just to be read as genuine literary works. 
So does it give you more satisfaction to be read by Chinese in China or by Americans in America? I would say in China, but the fact is my books are not available in China. That's why I have to make the best of the situation here. They haven't been translated into they Chinese? Have, they have been translated into Chinese and published in Taiwan, but only Waiting was published in China. Then it went out of print, and no other books are allowed. They are banned. So that's the situation. And why are they banned? Politically sensitive. People in power don't like these kind of books. Specifically, what is there a message that capitalism is better than no, 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 socialism? No, no, no. For instance, the craze that touched on German massacre as a subject, war trash. That's another taboo subject. The Korean War and the Communists would not allow. And this one, Freedom I have too, because it's about the freedom and also criticism of nationalism. Dalai Lama also appeared in this book. So all these things, you know. And you know this when you write it, of course. I couldn't think of that. Who read this and who would be more pleased, I, it's not my concern. No. When you read the question, I thought hard about it. I, I realized, sure, if the Chinese read it and said this was a serious book, that would please me more. But when I work, I wouldn't think about it. No. Any specific groups of writers. Do you think that you prefer the Chinese to read it because it would result in a greater change? Uh, also, it depends on which book. I shouldn't say make a sweeping statement. If a book is set in China, I do prefer the Chinese read it because they have the ultimate judgment whether this is a truthful piece of work. But a book like A Free Life is set in the States. Also, the, the word games, the playfulness of the words, they cannot be translated anymore. They would not make sense. Even with a really good Chinese translator? You see, the Chinese is not a phonetic language. Mm. So you see, you present a person with an accent, or ungrammatical English, mm. but you can't do it in Chinese. A lot of things are very hard. See, it's very, very hard, very difficult. So in that sense, a book like this, it makes more sense to Americans. That also means I'm more pleased if the English readers like it. We're just closing down now. Sure, yeah. Would you like to be acknowledged and recognized in China in a way that you aren't currently? Of course, yes, that's the lurking wish. But on the other hand, you know, this kind of thing, it should be earned. That's very important. You have to earn it. But if they don't let your work be seen that's by the public... I'm, that's why I'm very com uncomfortable if, they, if I go to China, because my books are like my children. They are not allowed to... And you want to travel yeah, with your children. Yeah, it's true, exactly. The most famous story of exile or, or departure and return mm -hmm. is Odysseus. You quote from different parts of it here in eulogizing Odysseus as the ultimate spirit of human quest for truth and knowledge. Tennyson did not or could not suppress the fatal flaw in his hero who has become egotistical and destructive to others because he is not bound by his duty to his past, his family, and his homeland. This is seen as a flaw. Yes, for me I think, yes. And also not just me, and Dante also sees it as a flaw. Because he's not bound by his duty to his past? That's my interpretation, because he's a king. Now, once you restore the kingdom, you're supposed to stay, right? Yes. To, to, to you manage don't abandon the, your wife. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you manage the country and the mm -hmm. household because everything is still in ruins. You're supposed to, to rule for a while, to manage the country, but he is driven by the desire for the, a new journey of the wanderlust. And 
basically those people who went with him also perished. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it, it's kind of a destructive thing for him to do. It went to extreme, in other words. The spirit was good, perhaps, but really he, he indulged himself too much. The homeland is seen as an alien place to the returned exiles. Very often. It's yeah. just changed, hasn't it? Yeah. It's never yeah. the same. Yeah. I know when you're a child, and I, sure. I've been back to places I lived when I was a child, I was it's quite disappointed. Different. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It's quite it's upsetting. so small, right? Exactly, <laughs> everything's shrunk. Yes. But it's also, it misses, there was something that was magical. There's no magic anymore. Yeah. No magic anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had a similar experience. Uh, very disappointing. And yet, although you talk about this duty to the past and his family and his homeland, mm-hmm. you also make the point, though, that it's important to trample on the past. My pause argument. I don't think I can really accept that. But for me, that's really an eye-opener. It, it shows me at least the past should be utilized. Life is trip. You can't carry everything with you. You can only carry what will be useful, meaningful to you. That's my stand. You make the best use of the past. You can never completely get rid of the past, but you have to keep the useful, meaningful part. You then go on to quote another exile, a writer, a German writer, uh, mm-hmm. W.G. Seabold and mm-hmm. the immigrants, and you talk about the four characters in the book, and three yeah. of them commit suicide, the yes. one that survives. This automatic suppression of his mother tongue is essential yeah. for his survival. That's my reading of this in the, the the fourth narrative. I, I do believe that to keep his sanity. Yeah, he didn't feel the pain of loss because it was so intense. It became painless to him. Yes, he lost the consciousness of pain. It's an alternative to what you're saying. Yep. In the beginning, he, he suffered so much. The suffering is so intense, he couldn't feel the pain anymore. But then he says, through confronting the painful past, Ferber, that's mm-hmm. the name of the character, yeah finally can accept it as part of his being. Yes, that happened when he went to uh, Gunwald to, to see the Gunwald paintings. He suddenly realized, he, all the memory, everything came back. Uh, he had to face it. I think that because they, all the others, they tried, they went through the same process, they suppressed. But when they are older, they get older. You know, physically, mentally, you're not strong anymore. The past, the suffering, the pain will come and overtake you again. Fortunately, before he reached that point, he was capable to confront the pain. So that's why he read the diary carefully, and later he gave the diary to Zabel to construct a narrative story of it. It's interesting how in mental health you have these painful experiences mm-hmm. in childhood, yeah. you suppress them. Yes. Many people experience a numbness. Yes, you are weak, you are feeble, it comes yeah. up again, it destroys you. And then you deal with it by, in many cases, committing suicide. Yes, guess, yes. Or being fortunate enough to have, what, is it courage, or what is it that, that this character Ferber has? Courage is a part of it. I think also luck. You know, yeah. the guy somehow at every turn, he just made the, he did the right thing. For instance, he went to Manchester as a way, as escape from his past. But finally, he went, he reached there, he realized, this is the place, I can't move on anymore. But then he lived right in the middle of all the, the Jews. Yes, his people. <laughs> yeah, his people. Yeah. So that's why he said, I, I, I'm here to serve under the chimney. He's part of the past. And every turn, he just did the right thing. But on the whole, the book really shows you know how to survive the kind of historical destructive forces around you, and how to, as an individual, as an artist, how you can you should manage your 
relationship with the past. At the same time, to maintain your enough room for your own development. Final question: Are you glad that you left China, and do you wish at some point, like Sultanism, to return? I'm in a different situation. I don't write in Chinese. I write only short pieces, but not creative work. And also, I went right before Solzhenitsyn returned to Russia. He was returning. I saw an interview. He still spoke Russian. He doesn't speak, didn't speak English. So I'm in a different situation. I, I feel I was always on the move. I do have the attachment to my native land, but at the same time, I, I'm rational about this. That means a, a real return is impossible. Separate myself from my past, that would be suicidal like one of the Zabel's characters. I cannot do that. So you're not going to be quite as extreme as Odysseus then? No, no, never. It's impossible. still have the wanderlust though. It's not whether I still have it or not. That's my situation. I have to go continue. There's no way for me, me to go back, both in the language and in physically. I can't adapt myself to that environment anymore. Well, thank you so much for oh. taking the time to talk to me about this. Thank you, Najib. It's okay. a pleasure. <laughs> ha Jin is the author of five novels, including A Free Life, Waiting, which won the National Book Award, and War Trash, which was the recipient of the Penn Faulkner Award, as well as three collections of short stories and three books of poetry. He teaches at Boston University. Thanks again. Thank you.